Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Mick Taggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. Welcome to the latest podcast and blogcast or whatever. Um, and with the news that our very latest issue, What Doctors Don't Tell You, is, is now in the shops in the US and the UK. Um, so it's available in all good shops, Whole Foods, Barnes & Noble, etc. in the States and supermarkets in the, in the UK. Um, so every so often, every fortnight, we like to talk about some of the news that's been out recently, things that have caught our attention, and just we want to talk about them a little bit. So uh, if we just kick off with the first item, which is that uh, there's been an increase in cases of measles and whooping cough over the last few years. And uh, the blame for this is usually put down to parents who choose not to have their children vaccinated and this is known as herd immunity without something like 95% uh, coverage uh, uh, the uh, doctors say well people will get the the disease and that's the problem but what's interesting is that in fact people who have been vaccinated are getting measles and whooping cough so the University of uh, uh, Michigan decided to have a look at this and discovered that in fact the problem is that the vaccines themselves do not have a lifelong protection. That, in fact, they're only good for 10 years, which makes, once a vaccinated child becomes an adult, becomes vulnerable all over again for whooping cough and measles. And this actually explains why there has been a rise in recent uh, recent years. Well, that's the annoying thing about it, Brian, is they always blame it on the unvaccinated. But when you start looking at study after study, you know, there was this famous Texas study looking at measles outbreaks and found that, you know, virtually all of the people who had had the outbreak of measles were vaccinated. Mm. So you have to go back to vaccination as being this really imperfect uh, tool that can lead to people being more vulnerable at a point when the illness is more dangerous. Mm. You know, mm. I mean, they always talk about and demonize measles and mm. lots of other things mm. uh, like measles mm. and, you know, some of the other uh, uh, childhood illnesses like mumps, etc. Mm. But they're, you know, they're fairly harmless for mm. uh, healthy, well-nourished children. You know, don't die from measles. Mm. But it's a more serious illness if you get it when you're 20. Mm. It, it, the uh, researchers have sort of tracked it back to the 1970s with the introduction of the acellular DBT jab, which was meant to be safer than the earlier version, but they describe it as being imperfect, that it doesn't provide lifelong immunity. And now as a result of that, they're seeing, um, they reckon, about a third of children between 10 and 14 are vulnerable to, to infection again, as are a whole tranche of older people who, who had the, the uh, shot much earlier on. Um, so it's a, it's a real worry because, you know, as, as you say, Lynn, once these, you know, we, these seem to be far less benign diseases when, when we do become adults. Mm -hmm. So, and they, do, they say, well, they, there's only one solution, <laughs> which is that people get this disease naturally as children, and that actually does give lifelong immunity. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is about this acellular vaccine for whooping cough and the diphtheria and tetanus, 
as you say, one of the most widely reported cases where or the vaccine with the, the most the, and the highest incidence of side effects was undoubtedly the DPT vaccine some years ago. And it was always this whole cell vaccine with pertussis, whooping cough, that seemed to cause the problem where kids were getting this kind of, you know, they were getting encephalitis and lots of other things, very, very high fever causing brain damage. And there were, you know, huge incidences of this. So they thought they'd came up with a safer vaccine, but clearly it just doesn't work very well. Um, one of our writers once characterized vaccination as being like squeezing a balloon. You squeeze one side of it and then another part of it pops out. And I think that's what we're really seeing is this over-reliance on the idea that we can just stop diseases, many of which are benign when they're just caught normally, by using vaccination, but we have to look much more carefully at this tool and what kind of side effects it's doing and whether or not it's working. That's why we always say, you've got to ask every, three questions when you're thinking about vaccinating your child. And you have to ask this of every vaccine. How effective is it? How safe is it? And how necessary is it? You know, are there other incidences of this illness out? Are there, you know, is there an outbreak? That changes that whole dynamic. And of course, for me, the biggest question is, if vaccines work so well, why do people object when parents don't want to vaccinate their kids? If it works really well, all the vaccinated kids are going to be protected. And the ones that are not vaccinated, well, the parents have decided to take their chances with the natural course of diseases if they even catch them. So that in itself, the idea that, you know, we all have to vaccinate or it's not going to work at all, seems to me that whole herd immunity idea seems to be a spurious argument. Hmm. And um, people may say, well, this is being very um, dangerous talk because vaccines protect children. But really, the, the answer has to be you have to stack the odds by talking about the immune system. And if the children are have a strong immune system and um, you know increasingly with that we're discovering that even that has a gut relationship and the more we understand the way the body actually does work the safer we will be and that these diseases do indeed become benign and the more we have to admit and recognize and look at examine be allowed to examine that these vaccines aren't benign themselves they can cause harm there's a big incidence of side effects with every single vaccine. And we need to know about that. We need to acknowledge it. And we need to do that kind of weighing up every time. Mm. I write about this in the latest issue with the headline, Doctors are smart, but nature is smarter. And I think that probably <laughs> is fair comment. Don't sweat the small stuff. A famous book of the 70s, or was it the 80s? I'm not going to sweat about it. <laughs> When we talk about stress, and um, we often think about the big issues of life, uh, such as divorce, losing your job, losing your home, all the rest of it, and we recognise that. But an interesting research uh, just come out that says, well, you know, yes, there are stress points, but the real niggling stress 
is the ones about when someone jumps the queue in front of you or get, jump, you know, cuts you off on the on the motorway or highway. Um, someone who may be a bit rude or short with you, and you 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 gnaw on it. You you don't forget it. The next day, you feel as badly and as angry about it as you did when it happened and throughout the day. And those are these flashpoints that actually are more responsible for stress-related health issues, such as heart problems, you name it, than the big crises. It's almost as if the immune system can deal with the crises far better than it can deal with the niggly little things. And um, they discover this because they tracked people for something like 10 years to find out, you know, the way they responded to life's little challenges. And the people who were niggled for a long time about those stupid little insults of life were far more likely to have a chronic health problem 10 years down the track. And um, it was quite interesting to see that it was, you know, it, and... and the big crises of life didn't even seem to feature. Mm -hmm. So isn't it fascinating that it's all the things you don't think about that would matter actually do matter enormously. Mm. And you know, you, Yeah, you know. well, and I think that, that makes a lot of sense when you think mm. about how, you know, adrenaline works and our stress response works. You know, we were mm. meant to deal with getting out of the way when a bear appears, mm. you know. So that would be equivalent to a big crisis, the ability to handle that. What happens, though, is all of that stress response gets fired up um, with all the cortisol and all of the things that get pumped into our system um, when, you know, somebody cuts us off on the, you know, in a car or somebody just jumps in front of us online. By the way, uh, in line is, is being in a queue in Americanese. Um, so all of those things get the same response going, but we don't have that kind of ability to, to, to let it go. So that seems to be one of the key elements here is that ability to let go, creating a, you know, some sort of lifestyle practice, you know, in your life that it enables you to let that uh, small stuff go. Mm. And we know also the evidence on what happens when we have a single disagreement with someone. You know, it can cause a whole big shock to our immune system that delays things like wound healing for an entire day. So imagine if you're just, you keep gnawing on something, the effect of that. So this is a big story for mm you know, arguing in favor of meditation and other contemplative practices that just allow you to let that mm. stuff go. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of sort of new age practices that could be used. I mean, meditation is certainly one. Forgiveness is another. Or in my case, short-term memory loss. <laughs> they all work just as well. So. Getting older, it helps. <laughs> anyway, the great physicist Albert Einstein once said that compounding was one of the great wonders of the universe. He was, of course, referring to financial situations where you actually put the interest back in and that then earns interest and so forth. And it does have a dramatic effect, it's true. But it also works in terms of health because, you know, you'd, you'd ask anyone in the street, well, what are the, some of the things that you should do to live a longer and healthier life? They're going to say, everyone's going to agree on the same things, you know, roughly something like, you know, exercising a bit, uh, eating healthily, 
uh, moderate drinking, don't get overweight, and don't smoke. I mean, everyone everyone knows this. Um, but if you actually do all of those things together, in other words, compound effect, you add on average 14 years to your life by doing all of them at the same time. Well, within reason. <laughs> you, you mean, yeah. Um, yeah, so they've done a study into this. And um, that's an average, 14 years extra. At, at the other extreme, it's up to 18 years added life by doing all of these things as, and adopt them all as part of your lifestyle, um, which is you know, particularly important for, well, it's important for all of us, but it's, this study was done in America where it is particularly important because America, despite spending more on healthcare by a country mile than any other country in the world, is only 31st in terms of life expectancy. Mm. Isn't that incredible? So none of them are doing hardly any of these things, let alone all of them. And, you know, it's absolutely essential that, in fact, they do if they're going to live to even a, a, a relatively old age. Because another interesting fact is that, is that the uh, mortality rates are, the, the, the rather longevity rates in America are dropping year by year. They're living less mm. each year. And that's, that fall has been happening for the last three years, when prior to that, they were actually extending life expectancy. Now it's dropping. So, I mean, it seems to me that medicine, you can throw as much medicine as you like at the problem, as America has, it doesn't make any difference to longevity. It is all about these lifestyle things, and it is about doing all of them together. This really argues uh, against two major influences in America and lots of other places in the West now, which is big pharma and big food. As you say, as people get older, they in America, they get prescribed tons of drugs that are supposed to deal with this or that problem to extend longevity. And they're obviously not working, not anywhere near as well as these simple lifestyle changes. But the other thing we have in America and <clears throat> lots of other places now in the West, is a crisis of obesity. And the reason we have a crisis of obesity is purely and simply because a lot of our food, indeed most of our food, is processed. And that is down to big food. And that processing essentially means we're eating sugar all the time. That, that processed food gets converted down through the body, through the liver, essentially into sugar. And that is what creates uh, overweight, um, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and so forth, and the whole range of degenerative diseases. So it's really about some simple practices. You know, the cooking from scratch, the Mediterranean diet, getting some exercise in your, you know, in your daily regime, just good all walking is really great for you. And all of those things about not smoking, drinking moderately, doesn't have to, you don't have to be teetotal, uh, moderate drinking is good for you. All of those things just make huge sense. And they also are, are very cheap to put into effect. You know, it doesn't require millions and billions in healthcare to just live a good life. Mm. And it goes back to the idea that, you know, I think we've become so accustomed in the West to this model of the expert you know that someone will fix the problem whatever it might be and it means that we don't have to take any responsibility 
But of course, the reality is, of course we do. You know, you can't just rely on medicine to fix the problems all the time, even if you throw more money at the problem than any other country in the world, because actually it doesn't. It doesn't work. And we have to take responsibility. And, you know, that's the bedrock of all healthcare systems. And none of it is being matched at the moment. They, you know, they say, well, you know, the problem is that we're spending more in the UK and in America on medicine. And the reason, they say, is because we're living longer. Not true. Well, first thing, we're not living longer. The, you know, the longevity rates are dropping. But that aside, it's not that we're living longer. It's li we're living longer badly. And that's the point. Yeah. And then if we are living longer badly, we then cost an enormous amount of health care uh, costs because somebody has to put us up and look after us 24-7. And so those kinds of scenarios can easily be avoided by just adopting these five practices. And that's why with what doctors don't tell you for many years, um, we've used as our slogan, control your own health. Because that's really what we're all about. We're about giving you the tools to do it yourself. Mm. Well, it's interesting. And just on a final note there, um, you know, compounding these healthy lifestyle choices, according to these researchers, would see the rate of heart disease drop by 75%. And heart disease is still the number one killer in the West. And it would see cancer deaths drop by 50%, which is the number two killer. And of course, if you do adopt a healthy lifestyle, you also avoid the third major cause of death, which is doctors and healthcare, which is the third cause of major third cause of death. So there you are. So it all makes sense all the way around. Absolutely. I suppose there are two things that divide the US from the UK. One is language, and the other one is the view about guns, really. I mean, in the UK, people are just perplexed about the use of guns and the mass ownership of guns in the US. And we, you know, we don't really understand it. And Americans argue, well, look, well, those in favour of guns say, well, look, it's not the gun, it's the person behind the gun. And there's some truth in that, of course. And that's been borne out by a new study that has reckoned that about a third of uh, mass shooters in the in US schools alone had been diagnosed with a mental disorder and from that were given a psychiatric drug now what causes what i mean people say well you know they had the mental disorder therefore they shot people but the question is what part did the psychiatric drug play in that mass shooting. We accept that, that many of the young people, they're mainly young white males who've done these terrible things, um, had, had mental problems. Of course they did. But what extent did the psychiatric drugs play in escalating the violence? Because, you know, even when Prozac, the antidepressant, first came out on the market, very early on, there were a number of isolated admittedly but nonetheless stories of people who were perfectly you know law-abiding peaceful people suddenly getting an axe and chopping people up I mean we were there were those cases even early on with the with the advent of, of Prozac and you know we can't help but feel that the psychiatric drugs themselves have also played a part in this and magnified the problem 
rather than help the problem. Well, we've seen that a lot in some of the cases where they have looked at a recent shooters, were they on some sort of drug? And this, as you say, Brian, this, isn't nothing, this is nothing new. For years, we've been talking about the dangers of drugs like Prozac, the SSRI um, class of antidepressants. From the start, drug manufacturers admitted that there were some issues with potential increased violence. I mean, it was downplayed, but they, as, as time has gone on, they've found that these drugs increase the risks of certain classes of people committing suicide, so killing themselves or killing other people. There's been a lot of issues about, uh, as you say, violence and homicidal behavior. I mean, there was one guy who uh, went crazy after taking this and started taking giant bites out of his mother. I mean, really crazed behavior. So we really have to start looking at the effect of drugs on gun violence. Because it's not just the SSRIs, there's a lot of other drugs that cause a kind of mania or just, you know, hallucinatory effects or just unusual, just abnormal type behavior. I mean, we have to look at the opioid painkillers, which are, you know, are just rampant in America, but also many, many other drugs. Um, and just look at and admit the relationship between them and both suicide and other kind of violence. Mm. And it is an epidemic. I mean, this century alone, which is 18 years old, um, at the time these researchers did this, by the way, and I think there's been an incident since then, but at the time they did it, 66 people have been killed in those 18 years. Um, and uh, a mass shooting, by the way, is any any event where more than four people are, are killed. Um, you know, it is absolutely shocking. And it's already, in the first 18 years, more deaths than the total number killed in mass shootings throughout the whole of the 20th century. Mm. So, I mean, whether there's a Me Too epidemic going on as well. But what is very clear, as the researchers point out, is that the the uh, the third, a third, at least a third of these shooters had uh, psychiatric problems and had, as they rather euphemistically said, had limited conflict resolution skills, <laughs> which is certainly the case. And... Um, but really, the other question is, you know, you've got the, the issue about psychiatric drugs and how the magnifying effect of the drugs. But the, the researchers do raise one other issue in saying, well, how come these young people with a history of, of mental problems, how come they are so able to get guns in the first place? That's a whole other big issue, Brian. Mm. But I, what we really need to do is to look at... Um, not only the psychiatric profiles, but there should be some controls on the ability of people on these drugs to get a gun, mm. because there is a clear stated link on the, on the uh, drug profiles from manufacturers about potential increased levels of violence, and it's time we, we admitted it. And moving on to a, quite a serious subject. Is there, a, is there a nutritional supplement you really should be taking? Well, there, of course, there are. There are a number one number of them, and I suppose it's pretty naive 
or simplistic to talk about a magic bullet because things do work synergistically. Having said that, um, there's been some research into the coenzyme Q10 supplement, which seems to have enormous impact on aging, um, especially in our blood vessels. And um, people who've been taking the uh, supplement um, have actually found that their um, artery health has been appears to be 20 years younger. I mean, obviously, they're doing some subspecial sort of imaging here to find that out. But after just taking the supplement for just six weeks, the artery health is looking as if it were 20 years younger. Of course, that's obviously one of the keys to longevity and, and being well, that it could have this effect. And, and it seems it's a, it's a supplement that targets the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of our cells. And it also changes the lining of the blood vessels and has this incredible effect, which allows them to dilate better more as they would as a younger person, which, of course, then increases blood flow. So, but the extraordinary thing about this study, um, apart from that, the people who were taking the supplement were already aged 60 at the youngest and were up to 79 years of age. The fact was that this enormous change was seen in just six weeks. I mean, it's a special adapted form of it by a, a company called um, MitoQ, who are based out of New Zealand. So it's their special version of this. But um, I think it's an extraordinary piece of research. It's probably conducted study. And I think it's, it's fascinating that it does have that effect. CoQ10, as it's normally known, co coenzyme Q10, is a kind of miracle substance because it has effects on not only the arteries, you know, generally of the body, which would affect everything, particularly the, the heart, but also the brain. I mean, I'm just looking into new evidence showing that mitochondria is really central to so many other parts of the body and health in general and longevity. But one area it has that's overlooked where it has a huge effect is on neurodegeneration. So Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of those kinds of neurological problems that people have, even uh, ADD, you know, attention deficit um, syndrome. And what they're finding is that CoQ10 can really mitigate against that, that and a few other really important supplements. But CoQ10 is really central. And here's the, of course, fascinating thing. I think we've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Guess what statins do? Now, statins are probably the most popular heart drug there is to try to lower cholesterol. Guess what they do? They wipe out stores of CoQ10. So you can imagine what that does. That causes arterial damage. So that's why they now give patients taking statins CoQ10 or have it as part of the drug itself now. But the point is you can eliminate the statins, take the CoQ10, and you're probably going to uh, be more likely to have arterial health. But it's a really important issue, too, because if CoQ10 is wiped out and we see um, what's going on with statins, there is a big increase with, with lowered cholesterol, no CoQ10, in dementia and Alzheimer's. And of mm. course, all of those statistics are skyrocketing. Mm. So there's probably a real association here. So mm. CoQ10 is 
something close to a magic bullet and mm. certainly should be part of anybody's supplement program mm. over about 50. But I think there's an important uh, caveat to, to, to add to that. The um, researchers said that it really puts the antioxidants back on the map because it's CoQ10 is, a, is an antioxidant, because a lot of previous studies really hadn't found a lot of evidence that it, the antioxidants were working that well. And I think what the important point of this is that the uh, Mitocube supplements are at the serious end. They are nutraceuticals. And I think a lot of researchers in the past have been using the bog standard stuff, which costs a couple of dollars off the shelf, and they really don't have a lot of therapeutic effect and it is important if you're going to supplement and you probably do need to because the 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 soil in which our vegetables are grown is so depleted that we need to do something but if you are going to supplement it is very important that you are serious about it and you spend a little bit more money and get the high quality ones and then you, I think you'll start seeing an impact on your health and the higher levels, too, as you say, Brian, because, you know, if you look at something like vitamin C or some of the other uh, vitamins that were studied for their antioxidant, antioxidant value, um, the researchers gave them at very low levels. Now, if you try to give a patient <clears throat> um, with some sort of serious infection 500 milligrams of vitamin C, it's not going to be doing much good you've got to start giving them 10 grams an hour to start seeing an effect during a serious infection. So it's worth really researching and investigating um, how much to take. And of course, in what doctors don't tell you, we tell you about how much to take every month. Mm. And talking of which, that another reminder that this is our latest issue. It's now out in the stores. And I think this sort of wraps it up for another week, Lynn. I think... Um, useful health information there for for the good folk we hope so and thank you for listening and we'll catch up with you again soon see you next time